Good, good. How y'all doing? It is so good to see some faces that we have not seen for a while. Welcome back. And we haven't seen all of any of your faces for a while, but, uh, but it is good. So we're starting a, uh, a new series today called I Am. And uh, if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're exploring the Christian faith, this series is especially for you. I mean, it's good for all of us. But we are, we are, we've developed this series around those who are seeking spiritual truth, that are seeking the truth. And uh, I, I want to encourage all of us to be praying Throughout this series, who can I bring on Sunday morning to hear uh, the gospel, to hear the, the good news about who Jesus is? But if you're exploring the Christian faith, the most important question to consider by far is not what church or denomination is the right one. Is it the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church or the Baptist Church or the Pentecostal Church? It's not whether we can answer every single one of your Bible questions, but the most important question that you can ask if you are, if you are considering or exploring the Christian faith is who is this mysterious man that we know of as Jesus Christ? Who is he? And we can have opinions about this question, but we want to go right to the source. John, the Apostle John, was in Jesus' inner circle of followers. And he wrote his gospel or eyewitness account of the good news about Jesus towards the end of his life. He wanted the world to know who this man really was. And in the next seven weeks, uh, we're going to look at some of the things that John chose to tell us about Jesus' life and, and discover what they tell us about who he is. To do this, I want to start way back, long before Jesus and John, in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus 3, this is near the beginning of the Bible, and it's 1,800 years before Jesus was born. But in Exodus 3, Moses encounters God's presence in the form of a fire of glory that seemed to be burning a bush, but the bush wasn't consumed by the flame. This was no ordinary fire or flame, but God was there. His glory was there, and God was calling Moses uh, to go to the great Pharaoh of Egypt and tell him to release the Hebrew people from slavery. And this was really shocking to Moses, especially because he had been on the run from the Pharaohs of Egypt for 40 years. And, and so Moses wanted to know who was this God he was talking to. And he said, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. In other words, you can't reduce me to a name or a description. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. There are many names for God in the Bible. But the one that stands out as the most sacred and the most true name of God is Yahweh. In Hebrew, it looks like this. And, it, and it repre- it's represented by these English letters, Y-H-W-H, and it's pronounced Yahweh. Yahweh, which is Hebrew for I am. I am. It seems an odd name at first, doesn't it? For God to say his name is I am. But I think there's two things that, uh, at least two things, that I think we can conclude from this name that will help us understand more about Jesus in this series. First of all, I think I am is intentionally mysterious, intentionally indescribable. And it's, it's mysterious and it leaves more questions than answers. If we think that we can simply explain or describe who God is, or for that matter, who Jesus of Nazareth is, then we are fooling ourselves. If God truly did, as we believe, speak the universe into existence at some point in the distant past, and if He truly did send His Son into this world to give His life on a cross for us so that sin could be washed away, if He truly does have a plan and a purpose, not only for the universe, but for you, and working out that plan in our lives, if all of that is true, then any God that we could reduce to our understanding is not worthy of our worship. The second thing I think I am says to us is that I am speaks about God as the source from which everything comes. He is The I am. The source. There's a bunch of names that we find in the Old Testament attributed to God. And some of them go something like this. Yahweh Yirah or Jehovah Jireh, some say. I I am the provider. Yahweh Shalom, I am peace. Yahweh Tzidkenu, I am righteousness. Yahweh Rapha, I am healing. And there are others. He is the source of those things. He is the answer. Now, what is your question? 
In John's Gospel, John has Jesus using the words, I am, a whole bunch. And it's not by coincidence. In fact, in one of these interactions, Jesus is talking to some religious leaders. And he's really throwing it down with them. I mean, they're using racial slurs against him and says he's demon-possessed. And Jesus says they're sons of the devil. They're throwing it down, right? And, uh, and then these religious leaders said Jesus wasn't much like Abraham, their father. And Jesus said, yeah, I know Abraham. He and I have chatted, and he was glad that I was coming. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. How could you know Abraham who lived 1,800 years ago? And Jesus answered them, before Abraham was, I am. Wow. You know what happened next? They picked up rocks to kill him and stone him to death because he just claimed to be the I am and they knew it and they believed it was blasphemy and they were going to kill him. In John 18, that was in John 8 that that happened. In John 18, the night before Jesus was crucified, Judas, the betrayer, led the, uh, the temple guards to the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew that's where Jesus went to pray. And when they showed up, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Now in our English translations, it says Jesus responded, many of our English translations, says Jesus responded, I am he. Which sounds pretty, pretty mundane, pretty simple. But in the original Greek language, it says, Ego eimi, I, I am. I, I am. In the scripture, John says, the, the soldiers fell to the ground when Jesus said those words. Wow. They have a flash of revelation that this man is the I am and they literally can't stand it. Right? Besides these two obvious examples of Jesus claiming the I am name for himself in John's Gospels, there are seven times that he makes I am statements to show another facet, another aspect of his identity. And we're going to take these I am statements and we're going to match them up with seven miracles. John writes about seven miracles that Jesus, Jesus performed. Why does John just give us seven miracles? Matthew, Matthew in his gospel, describes 22 miracles that Jesus does. Mark, in his gospel, describes 21 miracles that Jesus does. 
Luke, in his gospel, describes 20 miracles that Jesus does. But John just chooses seven. Why seven? Well, John has curated or selected these seven examples of Jesus doing the impossible for a reason. And he tells us in John 20, 30 to 31, he says, Jesus performed many other signs. In other words, I could have written about 20-some miracles as well. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. John wants with all of his heart for you as you read the Gospel of John, and I encourage you, if you are seeking, pick the Bible up and read the Gospel of John through as we're doing this series. And expect to discover, to encounter Jesus himself as you're reading it. But John, with all of his heart, wanted us to hear these descriptions of Jesus' statements and Jesus' miracles and for us to have our own personal encounter with Jesus. John didn't just tell a nice story because he likes telling nice stories. But he told the gospel, the good news about Jesus because he wants you to meet him. And so the first sign that John describes in John chapter 2 is turning water to wine. I'm going to read this description really quickly. If I can get to it really quickly. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for Jews by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus shows up to this wedding in Cana. 
And it seems like he was the guest of his mother who was invited. But he was a wedding crasher. And he not only shows up, but he shows up with at least 12 other people with him. And we know they probably weren't originally invited or included on the guest list because Jesus just met most of them that week. We find that in the first chapter of John. So Jesus shows up with a whole bunch of guests and he and his crew are probably one of the reasons why they've run out of beverages. Right? Either way, the host is in a jam and Mary looks to Jesus to do something about it. I don't know what caused her to think that he could do something about it. Maybe Jesus did some miracles at home when he was a kid, multiplying cookies or something. I don't know. But somehow she knew that this was possible for Jesus to do something about this situation. And I think she also knew as his mother that it was time for him to lay down the construction tools and to get about the business that he was born to do. Jesus pushes back a bit. Why are you involving me? But she doesn't take no for an answer. and She just tells the servants, do whatever he says, right? And Jesus points out the, the water jars that look much like the ones that, that you see in the picture. 20 to 30 gallons each, that's 150 gallons. It's a lot of wine. Jesus says, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Can you imagine being the one that's, you know, bringing what, as far as you know, it's water, right? And you're bringing this to the master. And I don't know if the miracle happened before they pulled it out or, or as he goes to drink it. I don't know when the miracle happened, but, but that would be pretty tense moment, I think. And when the master tastes it, it is top quality wine. Folks, this is mind-blowing. One substance doesn't just become another substance. Jesus changed this water at the molecular level into something else entirely. John then says in verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. Signs. John uses this word signs over and over in his gospel for each of these miracles. Signs. You know when you're coming up Highway 8 from Miramichi, there's a sign that says Danny's in and restaurant in 14 kilometers. Now, when you see that sign, you don't pull over, go to the sign and say, can I have a steak, please? You have to go to the place that the sign is pointing you. One of the things that John is telling us is that the miracles are not the point. 
But the miracles are pointing us to something. They're pointing us to the truth that Jesus is something more than you could ever imagine. This miracle tells us that there is so much more to Jesus. This wedding guest actually has creative power and authority to manipulate the atomic structure of matter. That's intense. And it's also telling us these jars of water, they were for ritual cleansing with water. These religious people were under the impression that by their own effort, they could cleanse themselves from the impurities of their lives, and yet for all of their ceremonies and all of their washing, they had remained unchanged. But we know that wine would come to represent forever the blood of Jesus shed for our transformation. And Jesus was saying, lay down your effort, lay down your religious striving, because only I can change your heart. Only I can truly wash you and make you clean. Folks, I believe our culture is desperate to find the key to changing their lives. I believe they're asking something like, what is the secret to true life? Each of these weeks, we're going to try to discover a question behind Jesus' I am statements. Because I believe when Jesus says I am, He's answering our questions. What is the secret to true life? I am. See, I believe this is a question that our world is asking Self-help books and videos and seminars are more popular than they've ever been. Every time I try to watch a YouTube video, somebody's trying to sign me up in the ads for some coaching video to change my life. You know, learn how to invest your money. It'll change your life. Everyone's looking for an angle in how can I change my life. What is the secret to true life? Jesus says, I am. I am the true vine. In John chapter 15, I am the true vine. Three things in this passage in John 15 that I think we can take from what Jesus says here. First of all, Jesus is our lifeline. Jesus is our lifeline. I am the true vine, he says, 
and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that I, it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Jesus goes on in verse <clears throat> He goes on in verse um, 4. He says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Our life, just like the branch of a, of a grape vine, you don't, you don't just see branches walking around producing grapes wherever willy-nilly they decide to walk, right? But they're connected to the vine, and they have to be, because the life flows from the vine. And Jesus is saying, if you want to truly live, you need to be connected to me. Jesus came to reconnect us to life. In the Greek language that the New Testament is written in, there are two words for life, bios and zoe. Bios, biological life, right? You are alive biologically. Everyone on earth that's breathing and their heart is beating is alive biologically. But God wants more for you than to just exist to just have a heartbeat. He has more for you. He wants Zoe, a whole different kind of life, to really live. The real tragedy of life is not that someone would die young, but that someone would live to a ripe old age but never truly live. Many of the people in this room this morning if we had the time to interview you all, would say that before you came to know Jesus as your Savior, as your hope, as your peace, that you only thought you were living until you actually met Him and came to know what real life really was. We were made to live connected to our Creator as our source. And sin severed that connection to God. Every person that is ever born since Adam and Eve has been born with their connector broken. Unable to connect to the Father because of sin. Jesus came to fix our connector. He came to reconcile us, to reconnect us to the Father. So that the life of God could flow through us again. And how that happens is hard to explain. But when it happens, you know that it happened. You know that suddenly something has changed inside of me. And there's a life flowing in me that I didn't know before. 
His Spirit makes you alive and you move differently through the world as one who has the life of God in you. The second thing that we see from this passage is that the Father will supervise your development. Jesus says the Father is the gardener. He says, I am the true vine, the Father is the gardener. Pam has had a brown thumb since we were married. Someone would give her a house plant and guaranteed it was dead within two weeks. She didn't even have to try. It just would die. The plant reaper. But a little over, two, a, little over a year ago, uh, Pam decided one day she was going to master caring for plants as a new hobby. And she has become a fantastic gardener of the plants in our house. We now have 38 plants in our house. And they're all flourishing. She's doing a great job. Jesus says that when we are connected to the vine, we had this incredible benefit that the Father is the gardener of our lives. That He watches over us to care for our well-being. A plant doesn't know what it needs. It relies on us to care for it and to do whatever is necessary for its healthy development. Sometimes that means adding fertilizer. Manure happens. Right? Sometimes it means pruning and cutting away growth so that it can grow better. Sometimes it means uprooting the plant altogether and repotting it in another container or different soil or putting it in more sunlight or less sunlight. There are times when an onlooker might watch a master gardener at work and say, what are you doing to that poor plant? But the gardener knows what he or she is doing and always has the plant's healthy growth at heart. When you trust your life to Jesus, the Father becomes the gardener of your life. He watches over every aspect of your life to make sure that you are becoming more like Jesus. That means everything, even the painful things in our lives, are filtered through His loving care. We don't understand it always. But we can know and trust that the gardener will use everything that happens in your life for your growth and maturity, for your good. Jesus wants us, needs us, we need to remain or abide in Him. Jesus is not just the way to get to heaven. He's the way to live your best life now. What a graphic picture Jesus gives here. He says, remain in me, I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, just in case you forgot. 
If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Graphic picture Jesus gives us. When we live life the way we were intended to live, connected at a deep level to our Creator through Jesus then we can live as a fruitful branch with life flowing through us. But if we become disconnected or our connection is hindered or blocked, we begin to shrivel. We begin to become a shell of what we were meant to be. And the point, the point for us today is that we would bear fruit. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The blessing of living connected to Christ is that your life and your desires come into alignment with God and His purposes for you. And when that happens, more and more, it, God brings you to, us to a place where we can It says here, ask anything we want and God will do it. Now that sounds pretty awesome. I would say if you want that too badly, in a selfish way, then you probably aren't there yet. If that makes sense. But God wants to get us to that place where we're so in alignment with His plan and His purpose and we're so connected to Him that we can ask anything and God will do it because we, He knows that it's in alignment with His will and His purpose for us. Because God's desire for your life is that you bear fruit. Public service announcement. It's not about you. Your life is not all about you. That's where the world around us goes wrong. That's where we sometimes go wrong. Is we want God's blessing so that we can just be blessed. But it's not about me. It's about my life becoming all that God planned for it to be. It's about people being helped and blessed and strengthened and encouraged because I'm in this world, because I'm connected to Jesus. So 
So what is the secret to true life? Jesus would say, I am. Let's stand. But I want to flesh that out with a few more words in summary this morning. The words on the screen. What is the secret to true life? Living it for your Creator in his pur- and His purpose by serving others with the strength, wisdom, and life that He provides for you every day as you stay intimately and intentionally connected to Him. Isn't that beautiful? I'm going to say that. We're going to say it one more time. What is the secret to true life? Living it for your Creator and His purpose by serving others. It's not about me. By serving others with the strength, wisdom, and life that He provides for you every day as you stay intimately and intentionally connected to Him. Folks, if you're here today or you're watching online and you don't know the life that we've been talking about here, you don't, you're not sure you know Jesus as your Savior, as your source, as your strength, as your life. Or maybe you've known that at one time and you feel like you've become disconnected or you've, the, the connection has become blocked. And I want to lead you in a prayer today to surrender our hearts and our lives to Him once more. Because He's the answer no matter what your question is. So if you're ready, if you're willing, pray this in your heart with me today. God, I thank You that You are You are our source. You are the I Am. You are our Creator. Thank You that You made me and that You love me and that You sent Jesus into this world. That He endured a cruel cross and shed His blood so that my sin could be washed away and forgiven. So that somehow, mysteriously, I could be reconnected to You. And that, God, Your life could flow through me. I need that life. And I ask You today to forgive me to wash me and make me clean. To be the gardener of my life, to watch over my life and to, to, to make me into the person you, made, you, you desired me to be when you created me. So that my life could count in this world. I thank you for your love. And I thank you for your gift of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time this morning, or the first time in a while, that connected with something in your spirit, and you need to talk about that with someone um, to figure out what the next steps in your life are in growing in your faith, 
make sure you talk to the person that brought you to church this morning or talk to one of our pastors or leaders because God has good stuff for you, doesn't he? God's got good stuff. Yeah, he does. Thank you so much for coming today. It's been wonderful to see a lot of your faces back and connected in our family. And I encourage you this week as you go, uh, remember the Lord uh, through John is revealing himself to us as his Savior and all of those miracles and all those things. So this week, the I am we're talking about is I am the vine and uh, staying connected to the vine. So as you go throughout your week this week, ask the Lord to show you, Lord, how can I be more connected to you? How can I see? How can I receive? How can I increase my capacity to be connected to you and see things through your eyes? So I just know that God has good stuff in this series ahead as we dig into his word and ask him to apply it to us and grow us. So be blessed as you go this week. Be blessed to be looking for um, God's hands in everything as you walk out your daily life. Be blessed. We'll see you tonight for Deeper. We're going to come together at 6 o'clock and have a worship service this evening. And, um, and don't forget to invite people to our pancake breakfast on Easter Sunday, all right? Have a wonderful week, folks. Bye-bye.